For the month of May, we read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Outliers examines the factors which contribute to high levels of success. And while we often attribute success to circumstance, today we'll discuss our thoughts to see if we agree. Let's get started. Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Allie. And I'm Emma. And we're debugging the tech industry. Pindo UI is a top quality commercial UI and data visualization component library for JavaScript developers. With dozens of professional UI components for Angular, React, Vue, and jQuery ready to use out of the box, you can quickly build polished, high-performance responsive web apps with your technology of choice. Kendo UI's feature-rich components can extend and augment any existing UI stack and can be easily customized to meet your specific requirements. The library's advanced functionality, including accessibility compliance, make Kendo UI the perfect suite to standardize on and remove much of the complexity of working with multiple UI solutions. To learn more, visit progress.co slash ladybug. That's P-R-G-R-E-S-S dot C-O slash ladybug. So Outliers was my pick for this month. It's a book I've always wanted to read, and I always get it confused with the other one by Adam Grant called Originals. And I always thought I was like, yeah, I read Outliers and then realized I hadn't. Um, So when I realized I hadn't, I decided that I wanted that to be my book club pick of the month because I think it's funny now that we each have like our brand on Twitter to some level, some people might look at that and see that as success. And so I thought this book might be pretty relevant to us, but I'm first excited to discuss what we think success means because the whole book is centered around this idea of being successful and, and how certain people are successful and not others. But what does success actually mean? I think it's pretty uh, subjective. So Kelly, what does success mean to oh, you? Oh boy, how do I define success? And that's a, honestly, like that is a, a, a really tough question. Like for me, uh, success is um, me being happy, um, me feeling fulfillment in my life, um, me being surrounded by people who I enjoy and people who enjoy my company. Um, I want to be doing something that I I thoroughly enjoy that is um, not just self-fulfilling, but is helping others as well. Awesome. What about you, Allie? Yeah, I think I would agree with that definition is happiness and not having to worry about certain things being or certain needs being fulfilled. I think that worry is a big part of it as well for me is not having that that concern. Um, Emma, how about you? So for me, it's so funny because I feel like my views on success have definitely changed over the past year or so. So just to everyone listening, an outlier, if you don't know what that is, it's something that is kind of situated away from the majority of other things. So they're typically, in this context, they're people that are deemed as being special. Uh, maybe not special, but like they... They stand out in some way. Yeah, yeah they stand out. That's a good That's a good way to put it. Um, for me right now, success is, I think, yeah, it's being happy. Um, it is being able to maybe fulfill all of my desires as a person. So for me, that would be like to be able to travel, to be able to spend time with family, to be able to um, go out and buy a new book if I want, like having the means to do so, whether that's having extra time to spend or whether that's having finances to do these things. Um, For me, that's what it means to be successful. And it's funny because back in the day, I would think, oh, well, if you have a lot of followers or if you have a ton of money, that means you're successful. Or if you're high up in your industry. But I do think that over the course of life, as your circumstances change, your views on what it means to be successful definitely change. Absolutely. Well. Yeah. Um, one of the quotes from the book says, 
What is the question we always ask about the successful? We want to know what they're like, what kind of personalities they have, or how intelligent they are, what kind of lifestyle they have, or what special talents they might have been born with. And we assume that it is those personal qualities that explain how that individual reached the top. And it's so funny because, yeah, there are so many assets and resources dedicated to how to be successful. How to change your, yeah, your, what you do to be successful. Yeah. It is very, like, single like personal like your personality needs to change or you you need to change your actions absolutely and i think we look at people who are deemed successful in our eyes and we want to learn their secret and it's funny because let's take the example of gaining twitter followers because i know a lot of people see a number and they think that you're successful if you have 10,000 or 5,000 or whatever um for people asking me how did you do it but you know, I've posted a blog post examining my analytics and all this stuff, but at the end of the day, how I achieved your quote unquote level of success it cannot be directly applied to you. Like you can't do everything that I've done and reap the same benefits. It has a lot to do with circumstance. And he does discuss several examples in this book that talk about circumstance. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Like, do you think we can take the thoughts of someone viewed as successful and apply them to someone else? I think we tend to try. I think that's, but that's just our our default action of how we, uh, how it's interesting. We tend to, I think we uh, tend to define success differently for ourselves than we define success to somebody else. Like what I would say you are, how you are successful versus how I am successful. But I know you. So I think it's going to be a little bit different here. But like using the same example of the Twitter followers, somebody who doesn't know you might define success for you differently than they define success for themselves and how you define success for yourself. That's a really good perspective. Uh, that's like mind mind. Yeah. And now <laughs> I'm thinking about that. that now. I'm like, oh yeah, for myself, it's happiness. But if I'm looking at somebody else, like how do you objectively measure happiness? You can't. And so you tend to cast success in different metrics for other people. Absolutely. It's funny because when I hear the word success, my first react, like the first image that pops into my mind is money. And I think for most of us, that is what success means is having enough money, not only to support your, your day-to-day functions as a human, but to have extra money to spend on things and not worry about whether you can go to the grocery store and swipe your card and worry about overdrafting. Um, and so I guess my next question is, how does privilege play into success? You know, we talk about circumstance. Uh, and he, in the book, talks a little bit about professional hockey players. I think this was one of the first chapters and how you see these quote unquote perf- um, successful hockey players who are drafted into the major leagues and, you know, paid a boatload of money. Uh, and what he does is he breaks down the um, recruiting or like the, I don't know what it's called for hockey, but like the drafting. Like when were these successful players born? Because the way that the draft was, it like fell I don't remember, was it like later in the year? And so people after the draft date were in the next round of drafting. And so they were younger. And as a result of them being younger, um, they were were deemed as like not as proficient at the sport, which I find really interesting. So it had nothing to do with necessarily their skills at that point in time. It was like the circumstance of when they happened to be born, which is very interesting. Yeah. And I mean, because they were born early on in the year versus later in the year, those who are born early you know, the first quarter of January, February, March, they had more time to train. They had more time to learn because they fell into the next year's draft. 
That kind of sucks. Yeah. It totally does. I think that this is such a good conversation about there's no one thing that leads to success, and it's a combination of factors. Like, if somebody is born at, at certain times in the year, that's one metric that leads to success or not. Um, that being said, it's not guaranteed that you, if you're born on the perfect date, that you are still going to become a professional hockey player. There's also what size you're born as, because if you're, I'm sure, really short or really, really tall, hockey is going to be more difficult. I think hockey players are like in the middle height-wise. And then there's the athletic thing. Like maybe if you are born with certain conditions, you're not going to be able to play sports as well. Um, The privilege of being able to afford yeah, training. That's what I thought was going to be the biggest metric, especially for hockey. It, it was always yeah. like I grew up in New England and it was always the rich kid sport because you have to pay so much for your skates and your for everything, really. It's not like a sport like uh, basketball where you can just show up with a ball to a court that's public and play. Um, hockey is super expensive to get into. But there's so many metrics. But then again, like all of those things being said and done, if somebody is the perfectly born hockey player, it does not mean that they're going to be successful. They still have to put the work in. They still have to um, go to practice and still have to have that drive. Have that yeah. drive because if they don't, if they don't have that self motivation or that somebody else motivating them, then if they don't ever practice, they're never going to be a professional hockey player anyways. So yeah. there's so many different metrics and so many different factors that play into this success. And so we cannot control our external factors. Those are things that we um, don't have the ability to at all control in our lives, but we do have some ability to control what we can. And that is our habits, going back to Atomic Habits for the millionth time, that lead us to where we want to be and to our goals and um, how we prioritize our time to get to where we want to be. And I think like going back to this idea of, yes, you still have, like if you meet the, the circumstances that are generally favorable to become successful in a profession or whatever, um, at that point, you can focus on motivation and hard work. But if what if you're not? What if you're not put into a circumstance where you are favored at becoming successful? A, is there anything we can do? And B, like at that point, you're more worried about getting those foundational circumstances um, into a place where they're equal with the people who are, quote unquote, more successful by default. Like, is there even anything that they can do at that point if you don't have the finances or the height or, um, you know, maybe you don't live close to a hockey arena to go to practice and you don't have a way to get there? Like, it it is unfair to a certain extent. It kind of sucks that, like, and this is just not just pertain to hockey. Like, you know, this pertains to the, the tech industry. We see this a lot. And I, I don't know how I feel about it. It makes me feel angry in a sense that, like, the the playing field isn't level from day one. Um, but I don't know what we can do to mitigate that, I guess. I can't say, yeah, I don't I don't think I really have the answers there. Um, but I mean the <laughs> I think you can ask a, a number of people, they will tell you the playing field has never been level for them from day no, one. Never um, has. My biggest soapbox though is that the education system has to be the biggest leveling place for people. Um and it's not right now. And so if we had a better education system, that would help a lot of things. But that's my hot take. 
I think it's absolutely true. And I think it's covered in the book as well. So. Yeah. Also poverty. I think yeah. the elimination of poverty would really help as well. I want to talk, well, before I switch into maybe more of the education example he gave, I just want to relay a quote that I that really sat well with me, which was, the tallest oak in the forest is the tallest not just because it grew from the hardiest acorn. It's the tallest because no other trees blocked its sunlight, because the soil around it was deep and rich, because no rabbit chewed through its bark as a sapling and no lumberjack cut it down before it matured. Like this to me was so eye-opening because often – when we're born into privilege or born into circumstances that are favorable to what we want to do with our lives, we don't see it. We're blind to this. I know I was until last year. Um, And so when when we become aware of these things, we need to make an effort to help level the playing field. Um, And Ali had just mentioned education. So I kind of want to switch gears and talk about this math example that he had described in one of the later chapters. So here's an example. So take the sequence of numbers four, eight, five, three, nine, seven, and six. If you speak English, you have a 50% chance of remembering the sequence of numbers. But if you're Chinese, you will most certainly get it right every time. Well, why is that? Like why at first glance, like, You just might say, oh, well, you know, people coming from China, maybe they're just better at math. But there's actually a reason behind why statistically they are more successful at remembering the sequence of numbers. So if you, uh, humans in general store digits in a memory loop that runs for about two seconds. What's interesting is that Chinese speakers can retain this list of numbers better because unlike English speakers, their language actually allows them to fit all seven numbers into a memory loop of two seconds. So in English, we would say like 14, 16, 17, 18, 19. Based on those, you might deduce, we would say one teen, two teen, uh, three teen, and five teen or something like that. But we don't. We say, you know, um, I don't even know what their counterparts are now. It's messing me up. 12, 11, 13, and 15, <laughs> right? Um, we've got 40, 60, but then we um, we have 50, 30, and 20, which don't sound like three, five, and two. So it's very confusing. Um, but not only that, it's like the structure of our numbers. So for numbers above 20, we put the decade first. So 30, 40, 50, we put the, the tens value first or whatever it is. Um, but for the teen numbers, we do it the other way around. So it's 14, 17. And when we take all this and we put it together and we look at how China, Japan, and Korea have their logical counting system, we look at that and how they would say 11 is 10, 1, 12 is 10, 2, 20, four is two tens four. And so this is a much more intuitive counting system. And by the age of five, American children are a year behind Asian children in fundamental math skills. And a lot of it results from communication and language, which is very interesting. I thought that was super interesting when we read that because I also could not remember the sequence of numbers. (laughs) Allie, did you have any thoughts about that, that example? Yeah, I thought it was really, really interesting. I think it's also interesting how different cultures prioritize different things in the education system as well. This is something that I've done some research into as I've had students that um, come from education systems in different areas in the world. Like India puts a really high emphasis on memorization, like rote memorization from what I understand. And so learners are just going to work a little bit differently depending on their the education that they were brought up in. And I think this is another really interesting example. Um, my mind was kind of blown by this, to be honest, while I was reading it. I thought it was really, really interesting. I think one of the other 
interesting examples that was in the book, and we don't have it written down in our outline, so I might mess this up. But when it was talking about uh, what you had available to you during the summertime between grade school and how much you tend to lose if you're not uh, able, like if you don't have the privilege of having those uh, educational activities over the summer, that there was a significant difference in the, uh, I don't know, I don't remember the words that they use for to describe like the educational level um, based on your, like your class, like your socioeconomic, socioeconomic status. There was significant differences in it. Um, I think that goes to like the discussion of year-round school versus the way that we have our our school structured as well. Yeah, so they were talking specifically about KIPP for one of the examples in here, which is a charter school that teaches year-round and much longer days in on Saturdays. Um, I used to have one a block or two over from where I lived in D.C. They're like a chain of charter schools now, and I know that the idea of charter schools is super controversial and um, there are a lot of issues with equity there, but I do think that the idea is interesting about how if there is less time off and more time in school that that may aid some students and level the playing field a little bit. So I, it kind of scared me reading this with the perspectives the kids at KIPP had um, that they were working nonstop and it seems like they had no breaks and were really just fully immersed in school, which reading it, I was like, oh my goodness, like they're kids. They need to be kids too. They need to have other um, things outside of school that they're doing. It can't just be education all the time. But that being said, it it also was an interesting thing to see that um, the big difference in kids at school is not actually school itself in according to the book but instead it's what they do over what students do over summer uh, vacation and whether they keep their reading levels up over that time very interesting i feel like we'll talk a little bit more too about this in our next book club episode for next month um, make it stick because that is centered around yeah. learning. um but that's i feel like oh my gosh we could do a whole a whole episode just on education in and of itself. Um, but one thing that this brings up is this concept of we're too much in awe of those who succeed and far too dismissive of those who fail. Uh, I totally agree with mm-hmm. this because we look at people we deem successful and we idolize them. Um, we see this a lot on Twitter with people with high follower counts are often idolized. You'll see names put on shirts and all these things. And um, we're like we're talking about people. We're not talking about famous actors or, you know, they're just people who happen to have a large following count. And this is harmful for, for several reasons, but, um, it's funny because I, as we're sitting here, I just got a notification on my phone from medium for an article called three things successful people don't do. And I quickly want to touch on this because I, it makes me angry reading the headlines. Um, so here are the three things that they say successful people don't do. The first is engage in purposeless activity, which I think is totally BS because you need time to process information, which, again, we'll touch more on Make It Stick. But holy crap, like, what, like this goes back to the kids' example. You need time to relax and to de-stress and to be a human. Yeah, I feel like I'm seeing this type of productivity um, productivity porn on Twitter all the time recently. Yeah, It's like... 
do X, Y, and Z and you'll be successful. Or you need to be doing X, Y, and Z in order to become a developer. Or you need to know these things. Or I did this and I am now a successful software engineer. So you can too. It drives me up the wall because it's like, no, nobody's in your situation. Everybody's story is different. Everybody's background is different. Like you're in a position of privilege and you are also... There's this thing called survivorship bias, where if you overcome something, you're like, oh, okay, I overcame it. Anybody else can too. And that is not the reality. If you survive something, then you're probably the outlier rather than the rule. Yeah. (laughs) Very true. Um, Yeah. I get very angry reading this. The second second, uh, out of three things that successful people do not do is to get wasted, which I think if people follow our Twitters, they know that we like to drink wine. And I don't think that's Mm -hmm. a secret. I wouldn't say we get wasted every day. But to say like, oh, you can't uh, rely. Have you ever seen Elon Musk wasted? This is the first sentence Um, of that. I feel like he's high tweeting all the time right now. (laughs) Like his tweets make no sense. I know. (laughs) And then the last point that they say successful people don't do this is to ruminate, worry, or catastrophize. Now, let me tell you something. I try not to worry about the things that I can't control. But at the end of the day, I'm a hot mess 95% of the time. I worry a lot. I stay up at night and can't sleep. So I just hate going back to Ali's point about like productivity porn. Like it's so shitty that you see all these big people posting like, oh, if you want to be successful, you can't take breaks or you can't drink alcohol every once in a while. Like, stop telling people what they should or should not do to be successful because like we said, it's very subjective and one path does not fit all. Yeah, that That's one just really bothers me. <laughs> I, I, a lot of people's metrics are pretty successful. I also have an anxiety disorder. I catastrophize non-stop. That's what I do. That's the way my brain works. It's not going to ever... I mean, I can do things to make it in be in, more in control, but that's the way that my brain works. I'm going to catastrophize, like, ridiculous. I guess you're just Very never going to be successful. Yeah, never going to be successful. Damn, Allie, you're just too short. Anyway, <laughs> you're, actually, actually, you're tall. tall. I I know, know, but I'm the short the tall one. one. <laughs> um, um, well, you're never going to be a hockey yeah, player. That's so. very true. Um, I'm a little old for that one. One of the things that he briefly touched on was practical intelligence versus analytical intelligence, which I found very interesting because they're not directly correlated. I think that's the right term. But um, practical intelligence are kind of like the skills that allow you to talk your way out of a crime that you've committed or convince your professor to move you to the afternoon class. So if you're hungover, you don't have to go to an early morning class or um, kind of basically knowing the right things to say to the right people at the right time and how to say it. Um, In contrast, analytical intelligence are this is what you would maybe look at as being your IQ level, the kind of intelligence needed to solve problems. I personally think that I struggle with analytical intelligence, but I'm better at practical intelligence. Like I'm, I'm, pro- I'm a professional bullshitter. I like to say, uh, <laughs> oh no, I don't know. It's just I think people see those with analytical intelligence, high analytical intelligence, and think that they are successful more so than people who have practical intelligence, which is very useful. They're very different. I think it's worth saying, though, it's not one versus the other. You have both. Yes. It's just they they represent themselves at different levels in each person. Yeah. No, I thought that um, Natter Dabbit had a really, really great tweet the other day. Being an excellent programmer will land you a good, comfortable job in the software industry. Being a good programmer with excellent people, communication, and soft skills can 
and will eventually land you at a job at the very top of the software industry. And I thought that that one was really interesting because it's the opposite of what a lot of people think coming in. Um, But I think it goes to this, that there needs to be a balance. You need to have both practical intelligence and analytical intelligence to really go far. Okay, so can they be learned? Can you get better in either of these areas? I think so. Because for me, I was a terrible problem solver until like the last year maybe. And I think we're all learning these things day to day. I I think, yes, to some extent, maybe we're born with certain, not capabilities, but a certain level of both. But I do think personally that they can be. Especially practical intelligence. I think that comes a lot more with experience. Agreed. Some people I think are good out the gate, but the more you experience, especially like the negative uh, experiences in your life that you learn from, you learn not to repeat those. And that definitely falls under practical intelligence. Yeah. Also just basic socialization. Like if you were raised not with people, it's going to be a lot more difficult to (laughs) to have that. Raised by wolves. Yeah, exactly. What? So thinking about this idea of communication, I want to talk about my favorite example from the book. Okay. I'm going to preface this with the fact that I love anything to do with airplanes also spaceships, but they're kind of the same. Anyway, Wait, what? Spaceships are basically just like a... Are the same large airplanes? They kind of are airplanes. That can go into space? Yeah, it's fine. Uh, anyway, don't tell Elon. He gives it... There's this chapter about airlines, and it talks about the rates of airline crashes in different cultures. So if we look at an airline... This is between the years 1988 to 1998, so a 10-year span. Looking at United Airlines, which is an American airline the loss rate was 0.27 per million airplane departures. So what that means is they lost an airplane flight once every 4 million flights. In contrast, during the same period of time, Korean Air, their loss rate was 4.79 per million departures, which is 17 times higher than the United counterpart. And uh, this was very confusing. They could not understand why. And then they started to examine how different cultures communicate and how they view the hierarchy of a business. This concept of mitigated speech, where we speak more politely when we're ashamed or embarrassed. And this is more common in Asian cultures. And this brings me back to The Culture Map by Aaron Meyer, which is a book I talk about, again, all the time. Um, Asian cultures don't like to... They will not uh, explicitly speak the negatives about something. What they will do is they will only explain the positives, and it's up to the listener to interpret that and read between the lines or read the air and understand what's really going on. And in the U.S., we're very, very explicit. So we talk about um, this individualism, collectivism scale as well. And this is, I think, Hoff's. I don't know how to say that, Hofstede's dimensions. (laughs) Um, The U.S. scores the highest on this individualism scale, meaning like every person is autonomous and and all of that. We're very, very straightforward. Guatemala uh, scores the highest on the collectivism end. So different cultures communicate differently, but also view hierarchy differently. And so what was happening is um, for the Korean airlines, you know, when there was a problem, um, the authority was much more respected. And what I found very interesting was that uh, flights were actually safer when the second-in-command pilot was flying versus the the more experienced pilot. Because it seems like backwards. You would think the more experienced pilot would be a safer choice for flying a a plane, but it was actually the opposite because in Asian cultures where, you know, the hierarchy is very strict and respected, um, if the primary pilot was flying and there was an error or an issue, the secondary pilot 
did not speak up. They didn't want to offend them or, um, I don't know, break that hierarchy of, of information, if that makes sense. I found that really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I did too. It also would have been really interesting to talk about how um, women are socialized, especially in work, to cage their speech more as well. Um, Because I think it's more than a cultural thing. I I think it's definitely a cultural thing for sure. And they back this up really well in the book. But I think it's also something that we see in the workplace with women as well. And since we talk about women in tech things on this show, I thought maybe would be worth bringing up, but I think it's an interesting um, point to this as well. I wonder, I bet there's a book that talks about this. I guarantee there's something that's been published that talks about this in terms of uh, how women communicate. Because it's, it's, mm, I did, did they touch on that in Invisible Women? They might have. I think that there's at least a TED talk about it. Let's see. Mm, Interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. We, I would highly recommend. I actually have a talk called "Building High Performance Teams Across Cultures" or something of that nature. It's a very long title, but it goes into some of the sentiments from the Aaron Meyer uh, Culture Map book. So, if you want to learn more about how different cultures communicate and collaborate, give feedback, things like that, I recommend checking that out. Um, but yeah, interesting. I don't think that book definitely didn't talk gender at all. But I don't know if there is one that does. The biggest problem that I had with this book, and this kind of leads into it, is I really enjoyed all the anecdotes, all the sentiments from it. But he talked, he mentioned one woman throughout this entire book. All of the examples of the outliers and all the successful people in this book were men for the most part. Like there was literally like one minute example of a woman. And that that really bothered me. I When was this book published? Uh, I wonder if like it's 2009. So it's not, I mean... Even I would still, feel like, I feel yeah. Like bit, he could have been more inclusive, not only with um, women, but maybe, like, I don't know. I just didn't feel like it was inclusive of everyone. It touched on a lot of the the people we think of as successful. Talking like Steve Jobs Very and true. Bill Gates. Which, by the way, we didn't talk about that example. But uh, kind of a really fascinating one in the book that the their circumstances that they were born in the right years where it was perfect timing where technology was was shifting where they were able to really jump on that opportunity and become who they are today definitely and also education system coming in again where bill gates went to lakeside school which is a very fancy at like prep school outside of seattle and they had access to computers before most schools and high-grade computers, too. And so that really led to his early success and ability to code. So Exactly. Uh-uh. To be fair, though, like, I think he found, and this was a comment that was part of the Goodreads uh, conversation. One of our, our listeners mentioned this as well. Um, I feel like he found examples that fit his yeah. narrative. To a certain extent, because think about it. Yes, okay, maybe there weren't as many prominent women. Like, when we think of geniuses in computer technology, engineering, whatever, we think of, you know, Bill Gates and, you know, all these other guys we just mentioned. But there were 
like there are women outliers in the tech industry that were not covered in this book because they didn't fit the the parameters of being born in this time frame, you know. I don't know. It was just like he could have found other outliers, but it didn't fit his narrative. Yeah, I think that that is very true. And something that bothered me a little bit about the book is that I always bring up the quote, the plural of data or the plural of anecdote is not data. And so he tells these stories and they're very convincing, but they're all Mm. supporting his narrative. And it's more focused on the stories, which it makes sense in a book instead of the actual data. And so I would have loved for this to have been a little bit more um, research that the control variables and things like that. So instead of just saying, okay, um, here's a piece of data and or here's an outlier, but here's the actual reason that they were successful. Like there are so many factors to that. Like I keep saying, um, having just these stories that paint a certain narrative or contribute to his point, I don't think is completely intellectually honest. That's something that I felt while reading the book. Um, so I don't know. Overall, I really, I think I enjoyed it. I read it in like one day just because I really, I I liked how fast paced it was. I felt it was very uh, approachable. And originally I rated this as a 4.5 out of 5 ladybugs. But think like just going through this again, because it's been a couple of months since I finished it. I think I would knock it down to like a three and a half or a four. I really enjoyed it. But based on like, you know, like finding examples that fit his narrative that wasn't fully inclusive. Like, I think I'm going to knock it down to like a three and a half or four uh, for me. But what about you? I had originally said four and a half as well. But as usual, you know, when you actually start discussing a book with other people, things you didn't think about before come up. And I think that that narrative component uh, is really important. So I'd give it a four. I think the examples were interesting, but they were also mentioned through the entire book and it felt super repetitive at times. Like every single chapter was closed the same way. Yeah. I gave it a four initially and I'd probably stick by that. I liked that it made me think. I think I really liked that it made us examine what success means, but also what factors play into that success and how it's not just that people are born geniuses or work really hard and that's the only thing that's going to make them successful. There's so many factors to that. But again, I'm not the biggest fan of the um, narrative pushing. Like, felt like he had set out to prove his point and so the whole book was there to support that point, which is is what it is, but I, I would have liked to see more conflicting sides for sure you want to shift to uh shout outs now uh yeah but before we do i just want to say a quick thank you to any everyone who contributed to the conversation around goodreads dominic had a really nice quote it said one thing that strikes me about the book is that it has a rather singular definition of success getting to the top and or being extremely rich what if we have what if we have our own definition of success how would that change the story i don't feel the need to lead a huge company or become a multi-billionaire in order to achieve success i really liked that i totally agree with the sentiments and it seemed kind of like everyone else had the same thoughts that we did so um if you want to be featured in our next episode for you know our future book clubs uh feel free to join us over on goodreads we do like to have conversations with y'all but yes let's switch into shout outs ali what's yours i didn't think of one beforehand um I am right now reading um, Open Book by Jessica Simpson, which I came into the book thinking that it was going to be not very good and was expecting to 
not like it, especially because it's a 400-page book, which I feel like is a pretty big book. I really like it. It is a good read. Um, she's very well written. It's very interesting to see what goes on behind the scenes with celebrity and the things that um, we didn't see in her life and her telling it. So I think it's interesting. I think it's a good book, much better than I expected coming in. So that's my my shout out. Emma, what's yours? I am going to give a shout out to Dave Ramsey. He is a financial guy. Um, I've been listening to his podcast for years because I've been very vocal. I, I was on a massive debt payoff journey for the last like five years and I finally paid it all off. Um, but he, you know, I attended his like financial peace university and I listened to his podcast and um, it really kept me, kept me going. So if you're looking for like a motivational podcast, it is a Christian podcast. So just be aware of that. Like um, it's not like overtly um like a ton of christianity but just be aware like if you're looking for something kind of agnostic and away from that um it is christian but overall really really good very uplifting and and uh, positive so that is my shout out what about you kelly i also i, I like dave ramsey i will say i i like his debt payoff strategy i don't like the fact that he is completely anti-credit card and i don't think he's great for retirement advice I would look elsewhere for that. Yeah. Uh, but I still, his podcast is, is really great. It's super inspirational. He does these like... It's motivational. Yeah. He yeah. does these debt-free screams where people like will go into the audio, like go into the studio and talk about how their debt journey. And then at the very end of it, they just like scream like, I'm debt-free. It's it's really cool. Um, I just uh, submitted for uh, mine. I hope I can I hope get in because I'm for Germany. But yeah, to your point, to your point, yeah, he is very yeah. opinionated. <laughs> I, I'm like, I like my Chase Sapphire reserve points. Like, <laughs> that's yeah. how I travel. <laughs> exactly. So my shout out, um, speaking of podcasts, is I started a new podcast with one of my friends in the Shopify space called Commerce Tea. Um, we're going to be interviewing uh, merchants who have had successful stories and talk about um, or talk to some experts in the industry and just, you know, tips and tricks for running and uh, growing your Shopify store. So I'm really excited. Uh, I'm, I'm co-host. The other co-host is uh, Rian Boitler. And you can visit the website at commerce.t.com. Nice. Awesome. 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 <laughs> awesome. Oh, my gosh. My brain, my brain just stood off there. Um, <laughs> if you like this episode, tweet about it. We really enjoy reading your feedback and your, uh, your podcast reviews. So thank you for that. We post new podcasts every Monday. So make sure to subscribe to be notified. And again, leave us a review. We love it. Um, next month's book is Make It Stick by Peter C. Brown and two other people. Um, so make sure to Sorry, join the two other people. We will link in our in our shows to get involved. This was Allie's pick of the month. Allie, what's the what's the high level uh, topic? That it's this all about how people learn. So I think it has a lot of actionable advice to make it so that you can learn how to do things better. Awesome, awesome sauce. All right, I hate myself for saying that. So with that, um, thank you for listening, and we'll see you on Monday. <laughs>